I'm not super bullish on large decentralized groups of people making quick and expedient decisions that are good for a, a financial system. And I know that's probably very unpopular, but the the core technology is it's a ledger. It's immutable, right? So you can't delete a transaction. So there's true source, there's like full source of truth. Um, and underlying our existing financial systems, there's very similar type of ledgers, right? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fintech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Sophia Goldberg, entrepreneur and author of the recently published The Field Guide to Global Payments, a great book about the complex and multifaceted payments industry where Sophia gives a great overview of the different payment systems around the world, the players who make this space go around, as well as some of the exciting innovations that are driving the future of payments. I'm almost done reading it, and I highly recommend you pick up a copy, especially if you're a fintech and finance operator, investor, or have aspirations of joining the industry. Every page will make you smarter and you will gain a deeper appreciation of the complexity of one of the most important technologies of our economy. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the great Sophia Goldberg. All right, well, Sophia, it's good to see you. Uh, welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast. Um, I'm, I'm excited to welcome you. Where, where are you today? Uh, well, first off, thanks for having me. I'm out of San Francisco right now. Very cool. Very cool. It uh, feels like you could be next door in New York. <laughs> that would be more fun. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, listen, I, I'm, I'm very excited to, to talk to you today because you have just published uh, what I think is going to become one of the most important payments uh, books in the industry, uh, so the the field guide to global payments, and and we're going to talk about the book and and kind of the the feedback and reception that you're getting. But before we go there, maybe tell us about your your background and why did you get into payments in the first place? Yeah, happy to. So I am I'm originally from the SF Bay Area, um, but kind of fell into the world of payments five years ago. Slightly by accident, I think most of us come to find payments in roundabout ways. Um, but I spent the last four and a half years at Adyen across commercial and product roles. But before that, I did a little bit of stuff in government, in politics, in UK and parliament, um, on the most recent Clinton campaign, then was at a four-person startup in Stockholm, Sweden. So kind of bounced around a few different things, realized I liked startup land, and found my way to payments really because... I'm fascinated by what I call like the physical mechanisms of the global economy. So I think commodities trading is cool. I think um, containerization and shipping and freight is pretty cool. And so when I found payments, it was kind of this combination of my interests in the global economy and trade and like nitty gritty pipes. And uh, Adyen was a, a great place to learn and get my sea legs and realize that, you know, there's so much global nuance that it's five years in and I'm still learning new things every week. Yeah. So you, you joined Adyen definitely at a time of, of hyper growth, right? Um, 
what does it mean to be part of a hyper growth company? And like, because things are breaking probably all the time, but uh, also a lot of things are, are working extremely well for the companies to scale this way. Um, and not, not a lot of people get that experience. So maybe you can share a bit about that. Yeah, I think um, we were in the, the lucky position that it actually didn't break very much. But I, at the time, would ex- describe like a hyper growth company. So I joined in 2017. I think we were just cresting 500 people globally. And I, I kind of call it the like pubescent stage where like everything is sexy, but everything hurts. And like, you know, there's so much that you can be doing and you're kind of always a little understaffed, but that also means there's so much opportunity. So a lot of what I got to do was because like I could stand up and say, Hey, I'd love to see this happen. And everyone looks around. It's like, okay, then go do it. Um, and so it, it was really great learning. Um, also from a cultural perspective, like a really great place to, to start out my career in payments. And, and sounds like your experience at Adyen inspired you to write this book, right? So maybe talk about the process of why, why decide to go out and, and do it. And, you know, how, what did it mean to write the first page? Yeah. So I'll, I'll take it back a little bit to when I joined Adian. Like I, I'm definitely like an academic bookie type person. Um, and so when I started, I was trying to find like, okay, what blogs can I go read? What books can I go read? And, you know, like many people had a copy of payment systems in the U S that was very hard to get through. So I did what ended up being the, the better alternative was just talking to a lot of people in the company and at other related companies and getting to know people and ask questions, which in turn pretty quickly became me helping train new hires. And I got a lot of joy out of that, of you know everything from training new hires to be involved with Payments Ed, the Payments Education Forum, which is a, a conference on payments education. And so I kind of fell into this role of like, really enjoying helping payments be more accessible in terms of you know, working in the industry, thinking about it. And I kind of have what I, I call my Jackson Pollock moment of you look at his painting, anyone can do this, right? But you didn't. And I was like, we could have such a better text for this industry that's accessible, that's conversational, that breaks down not everything, but a lot of what you may need to know. And that's not just card centric. Um, which, you know, coming from the US, our life is cards and cash, but that's not how most of the world functions, especially for for online payments. Um, and so I remember that first weekend, I decided to use the dictate function on my iPad and just kind of talk as if I had like a few new hires in front of me. And all of a sudden I had 10,000 words of just like, how does acquiring work? How do the card networks work? How does subscription billing work? And like these topics that I was really familiar and comfortable with and kind of almost had like a talk track already. And so it really just kind of flowed out. And that's when I realized, well, maybe this could be a book. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and so now that the book has been out for a couple of weeks, you're starting to get feedback. Which uh, parts of the book you think are uh, resonating the most with folks? So I was expecting a lot of the like non-card method or the business model chapter to resonate because I think those are like less served in the current books and, and blogs that are out there. But I've gotten a lot of really um, strong feedback on the cards section, which I was a little surprised by because I thought of cards as like, oh, we all know how these work. And I don't go into like insane depth. 
I go into enough depth that I thought was useful and apparently it is. And so hearing from folks in other countries building fintech and payment rails globally being like, oh, like I hadn't gotten this type of primer on cards and the US ecosystem. So that's been really cool to see it hit, you know, outside. Whereas I maybe a little too much was like, okay, I'm writing a global book for people who are familiar with the American payments landscape. Um, so it's cool to see the opposite as having really warm reception and also people who work in payments adjacent stuff here. And like everyone talks about interchange and all these, you know, startups either trying to get a bit of interchange or fight interchange and, you know, hearing like, oh, I didn't know all the other types of fees in payments and everything like that. So that's been pretty cool and surprising uh, that that section has been helpful to a lot of people. And, and speaking of this section, I mean, I think one of the learnings for a lot of people is going to be the fact that there's there's so few networks, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and and for you know anyone who hasn't read the book, by networks we mean Visa, we mean Mastercard, Amex, uh, and and there's basically six uh, dominant ones in the world, right? Why why is that the case? Uh, is it so hard? to launch uh, a new network then then just almost no one does it? Or are there other factors behind it? I think it is that hard. Um, It's a coordination problem. So it's, you know, they serve this really important force multiplier between billions of humans and millions, if not a billion merchants globally. And how do you get people to pay each other? And how do you get people talking in the right way? How do you build trust into it? So like an escrow of funds almost. And so it is really hard to both build that two-sided relationship and also the trust and usage to make it work. And at scale, it's absolutely astounding. Like Visa, MasterCard, China Union Pay, JCB, like at scale, these are massive and drive a huge portion of the global economy. But it is this like really tough problem of where do you start? Do you start with getting merchants on board? Do you start with getting consumers on board? A lot of the economy these days is a lot of people are both, which we see with marketplaces like Etsy and eBay and stuff like that. A lot of consumers or individuals are also selling. So I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the role of networks change. And we see the argument that like, oh, is Square with, you know, Cash App building the next rail? Or what about Venmo? Or will models like WeChat Pay or Alipay come here? And I think that'll be really interesting to see. And I think, you know, Square specifically has a really good shot if they can pull it off. Uh, but we have, you know, like a lot of entrenched power in the networks, especially in the US. Yeah, and I guess it's also a global game, right? Particularly in, in this world, yep. this globalized world, you it, it it's it's more powerful if you can be a, an international network. But I, I have been talking, interestingly, to some entrepreneurs, particularly in Latin America, they're kind of looking at maybe modernizing this pace. And do you think there are advantages if you can build a local network rather than going global? Huge. Yeah. I think there's huge, um, huge value both on consumer and merchant side, I think especially on consumer side in a lot of countries right now, there's, you know, green space. And then I think outside of the US, right, like Visa MasterCard are huge in the US, but you go outside and, you know, cards or the duopoly is not the the predominant, you know, uh, player in terms of payments. So I think there is a huge amount of space either for localized networks 
or just completely different payments models, like some of the RTP stuff we're seeing with PICS in Brazil or UPI in India. Um, I think there's a lot of room, not only to build kind of startups that look like what we have today in terms of models, but also new models, right? Like RTP systems, peer-to-peer, consumer business payments. So I think we'll probably see a lot of both just exploding over the next decade. And by RTP, you mean real-time payments, right? Correct, yeah. So speaking of real-time payments, um, I'm all for it, right? I'm all for speed. I'm all for, you know, a system like PIX, in Brazil, but at the same time, I, I recognize that at T plus two, kind of like a ACH model has uh, advantages, right? And, and great features, particularly around avoiding risk, right? And anti-money laundering uh, checks uh, and, and just avoiding fat finger errors, you know, and many other things. Um, so, do you think we'll ever move to just 100% uh, RTP around the world? Or or are we still going to have this delay, this T plus one, T plus two across the board? Yeah, I would be surprised if we ever have like full RTP, real-time payments for everything. I think it's also why we won't see, you know, crypto take over as the, the payment rail for everything, right? Which is also like, you know, trustless, instant, cheap, quote unquote, though not yet payments. I think there's a lot of utility in that delay in some ways. Um, There's a lot of downsides and I could talk about the downsides for days, but there's, you know, like you mentioned, there's the ability to reverse a transaction, which, you know, is a two-sided problem, right? Because that also means the person waiting for the funds might have to wait a few days to realize they're not getting these funds, so for like consumer payments use cases, absolute disaster for a merchant. But the the other side of it is a lot of money is made by the system on that delay. So everything from float products to um, everything in between, there's a bit of a, um, you know, lack of incentive there, right? And that's, I think, part of the reason why we see some of the most successful RTP attempts globally as like government pushed programs um, or central bank pushed programs, which makes sense. Um, because, yeah, a lot of money can be made on the margins of payments, especially on on time delays. How about the downsides? What, what are the, the biggest downsides that you see? Yeah, I think a lot of the downsides are um, if you're an individual or a smaller business, the faster you can get that cash, the more you can reinvest it or pay your workers or do things like that. I think payroll is a really interesting use case for RTP, everything from earned wage access. So making it a lot easier for people to get paid as they earn rather than waiting to only be paid every two weeks when bills are due every day of the month, right? In the US. And so I think there's utility there, which unlocks a huge amount of, you know, consumer buying power then. So I think there it gets really interesting. I think peer to peer, it can get really interesting though. In the US, we have the two like privatized solutions of Venmo and Cash App. So you can do like, peer-to-peer RTP, right? It's just someone else's ledger rather than a, a fully public, like, you know, government-sanctioned one. Yeah, and, and so you you talk about crypto in, in the book. Uh, maybe uh, tell us about the, the key differences between crypto payments and the way the system is built today outside of crypto. Yeah, so I think there's a lot more overlap than differences, I, right? It's, uh, you know, 
still coordination problems. Um, you know, there's still currency conversion. There's still time delays. There's still high fees. Um, there's still, you know, imperfect adoption among consumers. But I think the, the biggest difference and, and why I'm still waiting to see more interesting use cases for payments in crypto is because a lot of consumers treat it like a security, not a currency. And then it doesn't really make sense for payments so much because, you know, Bitcoin pizza being like the famous example of like, shit, did I just drop like 30K on a pizza if I had held this for another, you know, five years. So I think there, there's some of that. But from a technology perspective, it's really interesting from a like, how do decisions get made? But that's also a tragedy of the commons issue. So I'm I'm not super bullish on large decentralized groups of people making quick and expedient decisions that are good for a, a financial system. And I know that's probably very unpopular, but the, the core technology is it's a ledger. It's immutable, right? So you can't delete a transaction. So there's true source. There's like full source of truth. Um, and underlying our existing financial systems, there's very similar type of ledgers, right? With only one company controlling it or a few companies versus, you know, millions of people globally. But I'm still, I'm still waiting to see where that goes. By the way, <laughs> what is it about pizza? Because uh, I think the first e-commerce transaction uh, with Fiat in, in I think 94 or so yeah. was also the, a Pizza Hut pizza, right? Is that the case? Exactly. And I learned that in your book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the first online transaction that we know of, and I did a lot of um, a lot of fact checking on that one because I love pizza. I mean, who doesn't love pizza, right? I think that's part of the American human experience. And yeah, I, I think it's like kind of this universal, well, universal might not be fair, American thing of like ordering pizza or pizza at a party. or So it makes sense that there's so many touch points of people buying pizza. And it's like this interesting transaction value size where like, it's not so much money that it's, you know, not normalized or you wouldn't, you know, try some new form of payment on it. And so you're like, yeah, 10 bucks, 15 bucks. Sure. I'll try using Bitcoin or sure. I'll put my credit card into a website though. I really want to talk to the first person who did that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so writing a book, it just requires a lot of work, a lot of research. Um, maybe tell us about the process and, and maybe any, any fun reflections or anecdotes or things you've learned, uh, while researching and, and, and actually writing the book. Yeah. Um, so I decided to self-publish, which was also a process to that decision. I, I knew I wanted it to be a book and not a blog post pretty early, uh, cause I liked the physicality of being able to like pick it up, hold it, flip through it, look at the index and just like have it and to literally send to new hires or something like that. Um, I also thought that there would be finality towards it. So I wouldn't have to put out content every week. Instead, I spent a year putting out content every night, um, which was rough. And so I, I think what I, I was surprised by was, you know, at, at a macro level, people say self-publishing is super accessible now, which it is like I did it. I, it was accessible. Um, but I didn't know going in how many parts of publishing a book there are. Everything from you need to find an editor and a formatter and a book cover designer and learn how to use platforms like Ingram Spark and Amazon KDP and upload files that take a week to come back with an, like, it failed, not a, a why, not a, <laughs> like, publication kept getting delayed because, like, 
sometimes the upload would fail and I wouldn't know why for a week. Um, so I think there was all these parts of it that just like the project side of writing a book beyond the content was so much larger than I realized and had set out to do. Um, so I'm glad I didn't find it out till late in the process. So it sounds like um, there isn't a sort of turbo tax for self-publishing. No, you can get kind of close. Like the Amazon program does pretty well, but there's really not. I found this marketplace called Readsy actually, where I found an editor and a formatter and a book cover designer. Um, and I wouldn't have known where to find a person like that. But then you get quotes and they're everything from like, we're going to charge you $12,000 to edit this to like, I'll charge you 300 bucks. And I'm like, both of those sound incorrect. <laughs> but I also have no knowledge to know what is correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, what's your hope with this book? Uh, who, who should be picking a, a copy today? And um, yeah, I mean, just curious to, to hear what, what is your hope? Yeah, my hope is to like really demystify a lot of payments, right? It's confusing, but not inexplicably. Um, and so whether that means you're curious about payments because you're a nerd, whether that means you're investing in fintech payments, working at a payments company, or you're, you know, running a company and payments is literally how you get your revenue. And so understanding these systems, understanding the norms, I think for me, it's a give people the like scaffolding to understand the industry, the key terminology that then makes it easier to go learn more um, where they want or need to. And I think you you touched on this a little bit uh, on the book and, and just now, but what is the right approach for companies uh, on how to treat their payments departments? You know, because a, a lot of it, uh, the mentality that you see there and incorrect mentality most likely is what I saw when I was at banking and, you know, the technology and office department, they're the back office and no one wants to go there. Right. I, I actually worked for a couple of years in ops and tech. And, and you know, it's uh, it's brutal how uh, the culture looks at, at the talent in that department. Yet it's extremely important. Do you find similar parallels uh, with payments? Yeah, I, I think definitely it's been seen as purely a cost center like Payments we have to do, they cost a lot of money, right? If you're looking at top line, it's like, oh, we're paying 3% of our revenue to payments or something like that. Um, which if you're looking from CFO, it's just like, Ugh, get this off. Um, how can we decrease this? How can we just squeeze providers? But I, I think we are in this era of that changing a lot and payments being strategic, whether that's from the perspective of um, how accessible it is to launch an issuing program whether that's for disbursements, whether that's for any ops side things, but then has the you know revenue impact of you make a little bit of that interchange, but not a lot. Um, and then everything else to like, you know, stats around, which I don't have off the top of my head, like each new payment method you add to a checkout can improve conversion by a significant amount. So I think we are thankfully for, for people like me who, who love payments and have built our careers in payments. Um, there is this motion towards it being strategic, especially if you're a merchant, like a subscription merchant or a marketplace merchant, which is why I added two chapters on how those payment methods work. But I think, you know, we still have a long way to go for merchants to realize that this can be a strategic part of what they're doing. And when you think about the future of the payments industry, are there any, any technologies or trends that excite you the most? 
Yeah. Um, so I think we're still in early stages of verticalization. And so I'm really excited to see where that goes more, both verticalization and different solutions for, for different types of payments, like the, the card networks or even, you know, paying with online banking. It's really one size fits all model, but there's so many different types of payments, you know, B2B payments and versus, you know, loans and factoring and BNPL is now used for everything. But, you know, a gym merchant, you know, a whole bunch of gyms look very different than a whole bunch of laundromats and how they deal with payments, right? One's low dollar, one subscription. So like there's all of these different merchants that need very different things from a payments perspective. And majority of merchants will never build their best solution in-house, nor should they really spend all that time. Um, so I think there's a lot of room to see more uh, verticalized plays. And I think there's a lot of room for those to, to grow and be successful. Fantastic. Well, Sophia, this is, uh, is great. Thanks again for for writing this book for all of us. Uh, I, I've already started recommending it to a bunch of folks and uh, I'm proud to say that I got two people to buy it over the last 24 hours. Hey, so, thank you. <laughs> so uh, yeah. It's, we need uh, a, a payments book MLM. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, but yeah, so very, very cool. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see uh, what you're going to do next because uh, you're, you're not at Adyen anymore, right? Correct. I left in October to found my own startup in payments. Fantastic. But we're not talking about that yet. <laughs> more, more to come right there. More to come soon. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Sophia Goldberg. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the great editor, Rafael Ostria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armazar.